The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Joshua Zbika. He is an assistant professor of sociology at Colorado State University, where he conducts research and teaches about the intersections between food and agriculture, social inequalities, and social movements. He's the author of a great brand new book, just published 2018 by the University of Minnesota Press titled Food Justice Now, Deepening the Roots of Social Struggle, and we will be focusing our conversation on that today. The book explores food politics, food and social justice movements, and social inequalities within and beyond the food system. And I'm especially curious about his new project that will be exploring food and prison politics. Dr. Spica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Melinda. I think that your book is just what we need right now to further understand so many troubles that we are experiencing in our food system. My first question is, how did you become interested in food justice and inequalities in our social system? I think it really began as a college student. So I went to Santa Clara University, which is in Santa Clara, California. It's a Jesuit university with a social justice mission. And I was exposed to a number of different campaigns run by students at that time period. And one of those campaigns was to support the Coalition of Immokalee Workers boycott of Taco Bell. And that was their first nationwide campaign where they were going to university campuses and drumming up support from college students to help boycott Taco Bell to push farmers to pay a penny more per pound of tomatoes picked out in the fields of Immokalee. And so I began to learn about farm worker struggles and the role that people can play in supporting those efforts. And then on a different level, I started college in September 2001, right after the Twin Towers fell. And so the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq loomed large over my college experience. And one of my experiences was to engage with a number of other college students in a five-day fast to protest against the impending invasion of Iraq. And I began to learn about actually the denial of food as a tool to bring people together to raise awareness and build opposition to what we thought then and we know now to be a baseless war. And so all of that combined pushed me to think about the relationship between food and social justice in perhaps a different kind of way. And when I started my graduate studies at the University of Florida in 2008, I was really interested in how food can be a tool to solve problems, but then also thinking about food as an environmental good. I was learning a lot about environmental justice and all the environmental toxics and bads in our environment and began to contemplate, well, perhaps there's environmental goods that people don't have or people can use in really strategic ways and food 
became that lens for me. And I also had the luxury of some friends in Oakland, some, some dear friends of mine who I talk about actually in my book who started Planting Justice that were beginning to think about food justice in some really creative ways. And so that pushed me to also learn more about what they were doing and to support that kind of work. So I think combined, those experiences have shaped my perspective of what food justice is and what food justice can be. I love that you went to a university that had a social justice mission. I'm sure you go to parties and you're standing around with a group of people and maybe your field is different from others and you say, well, I'm writing a book about food justice. Do you think everybody understands what food justice is and how would you describe it? That's a great question and a question I've been asking myself for close to a decade. And I think really simply, food justice is the idea that we need to have equity at all points along the food supply chain and that food can also be a mechanism to advance equity in other sectors of our lives, whether politically, economically, or socially. And so really simply, those are the ways that I understand food justice and when somebody asks how I define it. Yeah, because I was thinking to myself, how does food justice differ from food sovereignty, for example? Have you looked at food sovereignty where if I were to describe that, it would be so that everyone has the ability to produce the food that they want and consume culturally appropriate foods. Similar, I would think that food justice is very much a part of food sovereignty. Yeah, I think you can't have food justice unless you have food sovereignty. And for me, food sovereignty understood as having self-determination and autonomy over the production and consumption of food at whatever scale is appropriate for a particular group of people. But the lineages are really different. And if you look at the lineage of food sovereignty, it really stems from the global south and international peasant movements like La Via Campesina, which are operating in unique locations within the global food system in that a lot of livelihoods are being stripped away due to the nature of global capitalism at this point. For example, the nature of structural adjustment programs requiring countries to, for instance, engage in export commodity production of food, mm. which can strip away land for peasants. And so that experience, I think, is really particular, but it's been integrated into the United States and I think merged with this notion of food justice, which has a different lineage and I think stems from racial justice movements in the United States and economic justice movements, yeah. which I point to in my book. And I think that particular historical lineage is important to trace, but then also to acknowledge that movements meld into each other. And I think we see that happening here in the U.S. with food sovereignty and food justice movements. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for explaining those two terms. Now, in the introduction of your book, you say that the major problems confronting activists committed to food justice revolved around mass incarceration, labor exploitation, and immigration. And you say these appear to be disparate, but in the eyes of activists, they are an opportunity. And I love that you recognize mass incarceration, labor exploitation, and immigration as being key to food justice. 
Talk to me a little bit about why you chose those three areas to look at the food system. So when I developed this study originally, it was a comparative case study. And it's a typical qualitative method to try to understand both similarities and differences in a particular area or around a particular topic. And in thinking about designing the study, I wanted to be intentional about picking cases that were unique, both in terms of what organizations were doing and how they were understanding food politics and practicing food politics, but also had some similarities. And in this case, similarities in terms of general commitment to social justice, albeit defined in different sorts of ways. And I went into this study spending time with the different organizations that the book highlights, spending about two, two and a half months doing participant observation. And I was an intern, actually, at all three organizations. And so they put me to work as well in their day-to-day operations. And so I got to see from the inside out what it meant to do food politics. And what I discovered was that food in many respects, wasn't always the most important topic. And I didn't know that that was going to be the case going into this study. But as I was listening to people and interviewing people and hearing their stories, I began to discern that, for instance, in the case of Planting Justice and their work with formerly incarcerated people, that food was a mechanism for them to intervene in this system of mass incarceration, or in the case of United Food and Commercial Workers, Local 770 in Los Angeles, that they're representing meatpacking and food processing workers and grocery retail workers. And at the end of the day, those workers are their rank and file. And so maintaining some baseline stability on a financial level and making sure that there was respect and dignity at work was more important than, say, the kind of food that was coming out of those grocery stores or those meatpacking and food processing plants. And so those insights, if you will, came from just direct observation and hanging out with people and hearing from them that that's really what was most important. Mm -hmm. I've been participating in kind of foodie-type events, right? We had a slow food chapter here in, in my community for a while. And I've heard from a lot of people who participate in these kinds of food-driven groups that there isn't enough focus on politics and the whole economic justice. It's not as comfortable as talking about, oh, this food is so tasty. Where was it grown? And what are the recipes involved? But we really have to dig below that if we want good quality food. We have to look at racial and economic justice issues as well. I couldn't agree more. And That's one of the arguments that I'm making in my book is that food justice is a demand, and it's a demand that expands the field of political struggle by reminding society of the structural inequalities that only political struggle for food justice can eliminate. And I think engaging the state in policymaking is really critical to push back against market-centric solutions. And you're right, it is easier to go to the farmer's market and buy a beautiful heirloom tomato from your local farmer, we all want that. We all want to taste that deliciousness. But if that tomato has been picked by somebody who's exploited at work and has no dignity at the workplace, we're tasting injustice. 
And it's really critical that we begin to unpack our relationship with our food and work with others to develop political strategies that have the power, potentially at least, to do more than just spend money. Mm -hmm. It's a much more difficult conversation to have. I don't know about you. I mean, even my own conversations say about the farm bill and changes that I'd like to see there. It's difficult. How do you help people engage in these conversations and care about them? One of the privileges that I have as a professor is that I get to teach college students. And those college students really give me a lot of hope Mm. because I teach a number of courses related to food and agriculture and food justice. And so I get to reveal, if you will, what's behind all the food that they're eating on a regular basis. And every single semester that I teach these courses, students are amazed that they didn't know, for example, where meat comes from and the pollution that comes out of that system, the animal abuse, the labor exploitation. And I find that they're actually very open to it because there's something very visceral about eating. And when you reveal that there's actually social conditions behind that food that you're tasting, I think that a lot of people get that. There's something embodied about the experience of eating where people can make a connection once they have a few tools to understand the system a little bit more. I mean, even if you just look at popular culture, it's incredible to me how many cooking shows there are, how many food documentaries there are, how many television series, radio programs. And I think there's an openness to what's going on with our food system. I think the challenge is just to begin having those conversations and doing so in a way that begins with mutual understanding and respect of the other person, that you're not a bad person because you don't know what's going on. I think there's a tendency, particularly in progressive circles or liberal or left circles, to browbeat the opposition or people that don't know enough. And you know, I think it's important to engage a little more empathetically with those differences in knowledge and understanding. Mm-hmm. Let me take one break and remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Dr. Joshua Zbika. He is an assistant professor of sociology at Colorado State University. We are talking about a wonderful new book of his titled Food Justice Now, Deepening the Roots of Social Struggle, published in 2018 by the University of Minnesota Press. Who did you write this book for? I wrote this book for a couple of audiences. The first audience, you know, as a professor, are people in the academy, whether professors, graduate students, undergraduate students. And as somebody who teaches on these topics, you know, I've just seen a plethora of books coming out over the past decade. And I've been both impressed by the rise in significance and focus on food justice but also wanting more and a deeper as well as broader analysis, both kind of historically and then just empirically on the day-to-day basis of how people are practicing food justice. So that was the first audience. And then the second audience really are for foodies and food activists everywhere to consider the justice questions more seriously Mm. and also to think a bit more strategically about 
how we can build collective power across different struggles within the food system, as well as different social struggles more broadly. And that food actually provides an opportunity to get outside of our food silos, to think more holistically about how to solve social problems. So those are kind of the main audiences that I wrote this book for. Well, I would like to add an audience, and that would be people in the health professions, especially Mm -hmm those of us who study nutrition and dietetics, but also people who are working in health clinics to better understand the people that come to us for help. Because I think so often we victimize individuals, we blame them for not making the right choices. I see this a lot, you know, well, if they just knew, if we just had education, but really the problems that underlie a lot of health and nutrition Problems are, as you say, they are based much deeper in economic issues and social injustice. I'm looking at the chapter on opposing the carceral state. I'm very interested in the harsh prison sentences that people receive. I recently attended a conference where there was a gentleman from the Department of Justice speaking about, you know, there's just a very small percentage of people who are in prison for violent crimes. Most of them are not, and they get these tremendously long sentences And I never take for granted my access to good food. And I think, what must it be like to be in the prison system and be forced to eat food that is not nourishing, that doesn't support mental or physical health? It might maintain caloric intake and keep you alive, but it doesn't really prevent the chronic illnesses that we face as a society. And you write that more important than the relationship between personal responsibility and crime are the racial and economic inequities embedded in a criminalized neighborhood. I know that your next project is going to be diving more in depth into the prison system and food. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit from this chapter. What did you learn about the prison system? What would you work on changing? Yeah, that's a great question. And I approached this work really from the point of reintroduction, post-incarceration, and kind of worked my way backwards. What I mean by that is in the course of my research with Planting Justice, I had the unique opportunity to hang out a lot with formerly incarcerated men who were in San Quentin State Prison. They were, at the time of the research, all black, and I talked a lot with them just about their lives and their experiences of going through the prison pipeline. And they told me a lot of stories about the challenges pre-incarceration, while incarcerated, and post-incarceration. And so I began to think about all the stages that these men went through and how at the end, in terms of the re-entry phase, that there was an opportunity to intervene in that pipeline to prevent them from going back to prison. And so what I found was that pre-incarceration, a lot of these men grew up in neighborhoods that were high in poverty, high in unemployment, and that were criminalized. You know, in Oakland, it's really typical for law enforcement to spend a disproportionate amount of resources in low-income communities of color. And it's not that there's necessarily more crime there, but if anybody takes a microscope to something, 
and keeps looking, you're going to find something. And then while in prison, a lot of these men talked extensively about labor exploitation. Mm. Some of them talked about the poor quality of food in prison, but what was most salient for the work that Planting Justice was doing by providing living wage jobs once they re-entered was the experience of prison labor and being paid really poorly. Somebody mentioned that they were being paid 17 cents an hour for work that outside of prison would be paid anywhere from 17 to $27 for. And so then upon reentry, a lot of these men oftentimes end up back in the same neighborhoods where they were first arrested. And so then the question in a context like California, where depending on the year, 55 to 65% of people who've been incarcerated go back to prison, the question then becomes, well, how do you prevent people from going back to prison? And for planting justice, they realized by working both inside San Quentin State Prison doing horticultural therapy with the Insight Garden Program and talking to these men that it would make a big difference if upon reentry, folks had good jobs. People had living wage jobs that had health care benefits and that there were support networks and mutual aid to assist in the healing process from the trauma of the prison pipeline. And I think what's really telling from what I saw in this case is that only one of the men who've worked with Planting Justice out of roughly 30 have gone back to prison. And so there's something there that's working. And I think it's important that we begin to think more strategically about restorative justice and how do we restore people who have experienced trauma of prison and perhaps also given trauma to others? How do we think about it as a process of healing instead of just a punishment Right. where there's no hope to break out of that pipeline? And the statistics, I think, bear that out, that in California, at least, reincarceration is the norm. Mm-hmm. And it's been like that for a long time. Right. Well, I agree that all the data that I've seen show that these types of horticultural programs reduce recidivism rates significantly. I was really curious about individuals who are producing food in prison systems. You know, I I look at food as a true healing modality, so not only for mental health, but physical health. And individuals who enter the prison pipeline are coming from communities where I know what they look like. There's soda, there's junk food. There isn't healing food available. So suddenly they're in a, a system, they're allowed to work on a farm, and they're not allowed to eat the food. Yeah, it's a bit of a conundrum. You would think that if you're spending the time to grow food, say in a garden inside prison, that that food would be made available. And I'm not clear enough exactly on what some of those restrictions are beyond a claim to sanitation and food safety issues and perhaps a violation of contract if food is being provided by, say, a large corporation like Aramark. So maybe those are some of the justification by prison officials, but it seems on the face of it that that would be secondary to trying to feed prisoners who, it's well-documented, have really poor food in prisons, the food that they grow. Right. I mean, if we want to 
truly provide a source of healing and to get people back into the community, making sure that they were well nourished should be at the top of the list. And of course, I'm looking at this through a dietitian's lens, but I just know how important food is to making us feel well. And again, it's mental and physical health. So I hope that in your next project with prison and the food system that you will investigate this a little bit more. I I sense that there might be some injustice involved, and I'd like to know more about it. But anyway, I'm just planting a seed there. We just have a couple minutes, and I was hoping maybe I'd give you a little bit of time to bring forth something from this book that you want to leave our listeners with. One of the lessons that I took away from doing this research was that we need to think a bit more carefully about how to politically engage. Mm. And I think through the process of learning about the immigration politics, labor politics, and carceral politics in each of these cases, that there are a few take-home points that perhaps are worth considering. The first is around this notion of the need to be building collective power and thinking about collective power through the lens of movement building. I think when food justice activists think like a movement, that they strive to collectivize their struggles in ways that can better tackle large structural problems, like, say, an immigration regime that racializes people coming across the border from Mexico to work in the fields of California. Mm. And I think too often the impulse is to act individually with charity or with our wallets. The impulse is to give food to the hungry or to buy food from the local farmer's market. And I think bringing a food justice analysis into, for instance, food policy councils or starting food policy councils with an express commitment to food justice can help build collective power. And I think at a grassroots level, we're already starting to see people mobilize more politically. And those local spaces are an entry point for us to do more of this kind of work. I think the second thing that I want to talk about is the need to be advancing diversity in the food movement. And this requires much more than inviting underrepresented groups into pre-existing white and middle-class spaces. I think there's a need to push against this token form of diversity and think more about creating inclusivity and decision-making power representative leadership, and an equitable distribution of resources within the food movement and food organizations. And I see this happening around the U.S. You know, I was just at the Community Food Systems Conference in Boston last year, and Malik Kikini gave a really powerful talk where he was talking about diversity in these kinds of ways, and I think it's important that we continue to do that. But Strategically speaking, food justice activists could also diversify their strategies and tactics and find ways to link up with other social justice struggles like the climate justice movement, the right to the city movement, and other kinds of racial justice movements like Black Lives Matter and the Dreamers. Mm-hmm. And this is already happening. You know, the Black Lives Matter or the movement for Black Lives has a food justice policy platform. The Parts of the climate justice movement have integrated food justice. And so there's real unique opportunities to diversify our struggles and work together. Well, we'll have to end there and direct people to your terrific book, Dr. Zbika. 
In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to especially thank my guest, Dr. Joshua Zbika, Assistant Professor of Sociology at Colorado State University and author of a terrific book, Food Justice Now, Deepening the Roots of Social Struggle. And we will provide a link to that website. Thank you so much, Dr. Zbika. Thanks, Melinda. It's been a real pleasure.